Hello, and welcome to the Culture Cafe podcast, a place for learning and self-improvement. I'm your host, Mike Book, and I'm pleased to kick off season one of this podcast and bring to you people who have helped advance their respective fields and have made a name for themselves in the process. I'm constantly inspired by my guests with the knowledge they bring and love sharing what they have to say with you all. Please enjoy the show. Hey guys, today I'm excited to bring you a conversation I had with Dr. Jonathan Clements. Jonathan Clements was formerly a visiting professor at Xi'an Jiatong University, China. He's a historian specializing in the Far East, whose recent books include The Emperor's Feast, A History of China and Twelve Meals, Christ Samurai, The True Story of the Shimabara Rebellion, and Japan at War in the Pacific. British-born, he is now a citizen of Finland and has also written a book about his adopted country, An Armchair Traveler's History of Finland, which he currently updated for the paperback, as well as an acclaimed biography of its wartime leader, Carl Gustav Mannerheim, Mannerheim, President, Soldier Spy. Most accounts of Mannerheim concentrate on his battles in the 1940s when he led Finland against the incursions of the Soviet Union but Clement's book focused instead on his early career as a Finn in the Tsar's military service, fighting in the Russo-Japanese War, and conducting a two-year undercover spying mission in China, posing as a Swedish anthropologist. For reasons nobody quite comprehends, he embarked upon a project on his blog to watch every Finnish film ever made in chronological order. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome, uh, Dr. Clements. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a huge fan of your book about uh, Carl Gustav uh, uh, Mannerheim, and um, reading your book about, uh, I would say, already a year ago, year and a half ago, I was amazed at um, how closely integrated he was with the Russian Empire of the time and the Russian system and his relationship with uh, Nicholas II. And we see him now as like this, uh, you know, demigod, this like, you know, incredible leader, disciplined military man. But uh, reading your book, he I was surprised to find out that he started off as a, somewhat of a, of a hoodlum. Uh, can you, I guess, dive into that part? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, let, let, let's go in backwards. Let's say that how he looks today, you know, his picture is on the wall in the military academy. You know, he's he's uh, a Finn of a level. I mean, he was voted the, the greatest Finn of all time in, in that kind of TV uh, program that, that many countries had. Uh, the Americans had the same program. They voted for Ronald Reagan. Uh, the British voted for Winston Churchill. And he has a very kind of Churchillian uh aura about him in finland and you know, because finland is a is a young country uh it's still only just a, a hundred years old now and because uh, as an independent republic um and because it has such a touchy history with russia uh over, over the last 200 years um you know he he has a a very powerful presence when finns tell the story of the republic of finland a big chunk of it is still world war ii just by the you know the law of statistics and so the idea that they had this amazing leader in world war ii who proved who pushed the country uh into I mean, bearing in mind that finland is the only part of of the old tsarist empire that didn't go red um uh is you know quite a, a remarkable achievement and, and and Mannerheim takes a lot of the credit for that um and so he has this huge demigod status in Finland um and the coverage of him is to my mind quite pious and quite humorless um they, there's very little uh leeway allowed in the kind of 
let's say, you know, the national discourse for talking about him as uh, as a difficult family man, as uh, as a as a careerist soldier, um, as uh, uh, as a failure in, in in many many parts of his career, um, as as a humorist, as a man who cracked jokes, as a man who had a sense of humor. He said some really funny things in his life, but the Finns tend to kind of avoid talking about that a whole lot. And so when I wrote my book. The thing that surprised me most about uh, about the reaction was how little they knew about him. And the, the man on the street in Finland, uh, if he's a weird uncle type, he's probably got a few Mannerheim books. But if he is, uh, but many of the journalists who were talking to me were very, very young, and they said, "You can tell me anything you want. I've got no idea." I mean, we did this in school, and it's kind of war, 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 and 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 it was very surprising to see. For example, very few of them were aware that their national hero. Um, had been a, a serving Russian officer for 30 years in the Tsar's army. And that's one of the reasons that he was so good at fighting the Russians, is that he had been working for them for so long. Um, and it's his career in the Russian army that made him the highest ranking Finn at the time of the, of the civil war and, and revolution in 1917-1918, which made him um, the, the leader of the Finnish forces in the first place. Um, but all of those things, when you wind back and you tell his life chronologically, um, something that my publishers tried to discourage me from doing, because, you know, these days history is supposed to kind of all come at you at once from different directions. And the idea of telling a kind of plodding story of someone's life is, is looked down upon. But chronologically, he had a very different life. And the way the world looked to him during his life was very different from the way it looks now that the history books are being written. So, he, as you said, was something of a hoodlum when he was young. He was, in our terms, a child of a broken home. Uh, his father ran off, uh, uh, on, ran out on, on his mother and his, uh, his siblings when he was very young. Um, he was batted around between a number of uh, relatives. The family struggled for money. They were they were they were uh, uh, aristocratic family, but they were uh, forced on hard times. And um, and he was a very difficult child. Um, his family nickname was Wildbocken, which means uh, madcap. Um, he was expelled from a number of schools for all kinds of crimes, like breaking the windows, like leaving the classroom to the windows instead of the door, like not showing up for class, like uh, you know, playing truant, cheating in exams, starting fights. Um, and this very difficult child, also a huge surprise to modern Finns when they hear that. Um, one, one newspaper actually ran a piece about my book which had uh, a kid on a skateboard with a backward baseball cap and a monocle. Like, this is the young Mannerheim. Um, they, uh, uh, this, this very difficult um, child, his family eventually kind of sent him away to the military academy in Haminer in the hope that that would beat some shape into him. But instead, he was thrown out of that. And their last resort was to send him to the Nikolovskoye uh, Cavalry School um, in St. Petersburg where he um, just scraped through. Um, that's the other interesting thing about him, is he was quite an average uh, officer. He was his own worst enemy. Um, he was so confident that he was going to come top of his class. He'd actually already ordered a commemorative plaque, and then uh, he suffered from uh, a, an insubordination incident, and then he disappeared one night and didn't make it back into the night uh, to the next day. And he got dropped down, and you know he 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 had a a, 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 a a bout of typhoid and 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 you know um didn't do well in the exams and so he had a relatively the only thing he was really good at was map making 
-hmm. which was almost no use at the time. Um, and so you have this guy who's got a very um, average career, a very unassuming career um, at the beginning of his 20s, who blunders into um, the Chevalier Guard, the personal entourage of um, the Tsar. Um, and he's only there really through family connections. Um, and uh, he, he marries uh, Anastasia Arapova, uh, a, a very rich general's daughter, and he clearly marries her for her money. Um, and all the family hated her. Um, but, you know, he had this troubled relationship with his wife that occupies one sentence in his memoirs. Um, and uh, within 10 years, she's run off to Paris with, with their daughters and they, they, they hardly see each other again. And they only get a divorce after the, um, the Finland becomes a republic, I think, mainly because of religious associations within what was then Russia. Um, um, and so at the beginning of the 20th century, um, he has almost run out of, of schemes. He's almost run out of hacks to get through his career. Money's getting low again. He can't rely on Anastasia anymore. Um, and he's taking all kinds of weird ideas. He's, he's uh, competing in horse races at the Manege in St. Petersburg because you get money for that. And then when war breaks out with Japan, he volunteers for frontline service. Even though as a Chevalier Guard, he shouldn't go anywhere near it because he needs medals because in, in Tsarist Russia, a medal brings with it a pension. So every military honor you can win for yourself is is a financial benefit um, and when he went off to fight in the Russo-Japanese war he also uh, took out two life insurance policies on himself <laughs> you know just in case because it would be better for some people if he died I think that's really his attitude and during the Russo-Japanese war he had this reputation for almost suicidal bravery well we've got those life insurance policies so that's kind of helpful and when the war is over, he stops specializing in horsemanship, which was, you know, he was a, he was a, a master of horses. He was an expert at horse buying. He was a, a real um, aficionado and connoisseur of everything to do with horses, which the modern Russian army was giving up on. And so he specialized instead on a future war with China or Japan. He figured there would be a rematch against Japan uh, and, and the battle would likely be fought in China. And he volunteered for this ridiculous uh, mission, this two-year mission to cross China on horseback, pretending to be a Swedish anthropologist, um, to make observations um, on um, troop movements and fortifications and, and uh, liable strategic issues um, in, in what we now call Xinjiang, uh, uh, Western China. Um, and he and he did it. He went on this two year mission. Um, and um, the thing about it was, is that that was the only way of getting promoted in peacetime. And so that put him just over the top so that later, so 10 years later, when when the Revo when the Russian Revolution broke out uh, and he went back to his homeland, the Grand Duchy of Finland, as it was fighting for independence, he turned out to be the highest ranking Finn in Russian service. And that led to him being appointed as the leader of the white Russians in Finland and so the, and, and the leader of the, the white side in, in the Finnish civil war. So he had this incredible career, um, which should have been over when he was 60. You know, he, he, he fought in the, in the civil war. They beat back. Um, the Russians, Finland proclaimed its independence. He very briefly served as Finland's regent, um, but uh, he wasn't voted president. He kind of reluctantly stood as president uh, in the running for president, but he was beaten by someone else. And um, 
he had this kind of loose cannon attitude about him or or rather people regarded him with kind of wariness like a bit like julius caesar there's there's a man who has the support of the whole army and it's kind of worrying he's going into politics and he kind of left it all behind he kind of stormed out uh in 1918 and went off and set up a coffee shop by the sea (laughs) and and for 10 years he's running this coffee shop and 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 you think well that you know he's in his 60s now you know it's, it's over it's all over and then of course as the 1930s begin he gets dragged back into the military apparatus and he becomes his consultant. He's saying, you know what? The Russians are going to come. I'm pretty sure the Russians are going to come. We should do something about those Russians, you know? Um, and I think the day after he eventually resigned in absolute annoyance that no one was listening to him, uh, there was a false flag attack on Finland and the, and the winter war broke out and he was dragged back once again. And, and by this point, he's, you know, he's, he's coming up, he's in his seventies and he's like, okay, well, I guess I'm, the, I'm in charge of Finland again. And, and so the big events of his life, the thing that everyone is supposed to talk about, the thing that the Finns are most animated with and which most books on Mannerheim and on Finland are about is World War II in his seventies. And, you know, most famously his 75th birthday party, the surprise guest is Adolf Hitler, because that's what you want at your birthday party, isn't it? You know, a vegetarian. Um, so, you know, not quite leaping out of a cake, uh, but 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 almost, and and um, and very famously, um, the the Finnish um, Secret Service managed to record Hitler uh, talking during dinner, and it's the only recording that we have, I think, of Hitler not declaiming in some kind of performance. It's him kind of chatting away about these things, and so you know, he has this incredible life, and at the end of World War Two. Uh, which has this, which for the Finns is this incredibly nuanced and complex issue about basically, you know, they're fighting on three different sides um, and, and Mannerheim being one of the only people to be decorated by every side in World War II. Um, he gets to be the president of Finland. They appoint him president of Finland because they need someone to kind of carry the can for everything. And he does that very, very briefly and runs off to Switzerland into retirement. And it's just this amazing life about a guy who is, uh, I think, frankly, to, to many young Finns, is just some picture on the wall in the classroom, and they don't really think about it. Um, and so I really wanted to tell the story of his whole life, not just the war bit, um, because World War II is, you know, vastly overrepresented in, in, in most Finnish history books. Um, but, you know, the, this absolutely bizarre series of events that that put him where he was um and many of them entirely coincidental i mean that there were moments in his life where if he had been successful it would have ruined his career um the 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 biggest case in point i think being the assault on st petersburg um he was very keen not only on defending finland from the soviet attack but on pushing back and, and and seizing what would then be Leningrad from uh, from the Russians, restoring the white Russians to power. Um, if he had done so, the white Russians would have never let Finland be independent. They, they wanted it to be part of a grand duchy. So, um, you know, it, it, it was lucky for him that there was you know, enough resistance among the Finns to, to his grand scheme um, to stop them from going anywhere near uh, St. Petersburg. Um, otherwise, an independent Finland would have been, you know, some, some, somewhat more problematic. I'm curious. So let's say, I think it was like Finnish parliament that kept him from attacking uh I guess Petrograd, Petrograd, Petrograd time, as right? it would have been then, yeah. Um, so and he was very upset about that. So let's say they did let him proceed. 
Uh, do you think that he would have been able to hold Petrograd and ultimately somehow link up with the rest? Uh, I, I don't know. That That's a very big question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, that, that, that's a big man of history question. And I don't think one person could have done it. Um, I, I think uh, so. So I, I don't want to get too deep into into what might have happened there. Um, the uh, whether or not he would have wanted to hold Petrograd is another issue because he was trained by the Russians, and um, we know from reading his own reports of his mission in China that he was very aware of uh, of, of a very common Russian tactic, a very common Russian strategy rather, which would be to seize an area of territory and sell it back. Mm-hmm. This is something that he recommended when he was discussing uh, Western China. He said that um, you know, it's impossible to hold Xinjiang. It's impossible to hold it. You know, it's got these vast areas of desert with these little tiny oases around it. It's very easy to march an army in, plant a flag and say it's yours. It's much harder to hang on to it. But we don't need to hang on to it. We just need to plant the flag. And then the Chinese will have to negotiate for Western China. And that will destruct all their manpower and all of their... Uh, resources away from the war we might be fighting in northeast China. So it's a very valuable strategic item to bargain with. And he may well have felt the same way about Petrograd. Like we can steal it and then you know make the make the Russians try and buy it back off us. So uh but but that's that's very speculative of course right. because the the you know I, I still get confused with the Russian Civil War about how many sides there were. <laughs> because yeah. I think last time I counted there were about eight or nine um, and uh, I, I'm particularly because of my background. I'm particularly interested in in the Russian Far East, the Far Eastern Republic, and and what might have been there. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, it's such a, a complicated issue, and it, it, it's so tied up with massive population movements and state formation and failed state formation uh, that it, it's very difficult to, to to get a handle on you know what was the vital hinge in history that would have made things go another way and and, and, and I would say that uh, the, the Finns marching into Petrograd probably wouldn't have been enough I suspect I agree since we're on the topic I guess of uh, the Russian Revolution you know Civil War he had a relationship with Nicholas II as I, we mentioned earlier before your book I had no idea he was at the coronation he was leading the procession he was in the photos i was amazed in in your book you detail at least two interactions with uh, nicholas ii one when he was returning from china i think he presented nicholas uh, with um, a gift from the dalai lama and he was surprised that nicholas knew how to properly accept it i think with both hands and then once uh during the midst of uh, world war one would you be able to dive uh, yeah. into that yeah. Um, I can't remember what the World War One one would have been, um, I, but he certainly had many interactions with Nicholas II because, uh, as a Chevalier Guard, he would have been standing by the throne repeatedly, day after day. You know, he he was certainly one of the uh, uh, one of the, the people who would. There, there are so many scenes where you see films about Tsarist Russia, and there's a Chevalier Guard standing guard, you know, next to the throne. And you think that could have been Mannerheim. Any one of these scenes, he could be <laughs> eavesdropping on it. It's very tempting as a historian to speculate on, on you know, what he might have heard. Um, and certainly when he came back from his trip to, well, from, from the two-year mission in China, he did indeed, uh, he was indeed summoned into the presence of, of Nicholas II and delivered a, a, a vast report, an absolute huge report about everything he'd been up to. Um, and, uh, and Nicholas II uh, stood for the whole thing. Which I think is fantastic. It's, it probably took a couple of hours, but he's but he's used to these Russian Orthodox services where no one ever sits down. So he just stood for the whole thing. And there's one biographer of, of Mannerheim who said, uh, you know, Nicholas sat and listened with interest. I'm like, mm, you weren't paying attention in the report, were you? Um, 
so um so yes they 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 certainly had uh, i i wouldn't say they had a close relationship or anything but they were certainly aware of each other and 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 on occasional speaking terms and uh, and quite famously i think one of the interesting things about manaheim when you when you get into his russian connections is he's a man who absolutely loved russians and absolutely hated soviets and that's a very important distinction to make particularly as the 20th century rolls on um because this is a man who had the portrait of nicholas ii um above his bed until his dying day and someone said what the hell is that doing there and he went he was my emperor you know i swore allegiance to the tsar i wasn't pissing about either i was really you know i really meant it and and during the the 1890s when when the russian uh uh attitude towards Finland was becoming increasingly draconian and increasingly difficult. Um, Mannerheim risked, you know, his connections within his own family. He, he was addressed as sometimes by them as Mannerheim the traitor, as Carl the traitor, as uh, Gustav the traitor, uh, because, you know, his, his own brother was sent into exile for, for anti-Tsarist activities, and, and Mannerheim's working at the palace, you know, he's, he's, he's one of the guy's guards. Um, and, and so he had a he had a very powerful loyalty towards towards the Tsar, um, and it's it's that um, and it's that I think that colours the hostility that he has towards the Soviets. Um, his own sister was within the borders of Red Helsinki during the Civil War. She was working as a nurse, and she wrote to him and she said, uh, "You know, these people are good people." You know, they are they are not the kind of uh, the bestial Bolsheviks that you keep hearing about. They have genuine desires to improve people's lives. They have socialist ambitions and and, and they want to make the world a better place. And, you know, and, and please don't think of them um, in, in propagandistic terms. Uh, but of course, he's leading the white forces. So it's very <laughs> unlikely it's going to happen. And, and, and the civil war in Finland is a really savage yeah. conflict. And, and the scars of it are still very much present even today um in in certain attitudes in certain behaviors uh in certain tense moments at various social gatherings where you realize what side someone's grandfather was on um and uh there, there, uh, there's a friend of mine said, this is something of a tangent but we'll go for it uh, a friend of mine <laughs> <Let's do it. laughs> uh, said that yeah, she said when her, when her grandmother got married uh, only half the family came because she married someone of the wrong color and I thought, wow. is this some kind of race? Is this some kind of racist thing? And he's like, no, no, no. She, you know, she married a red, and and you know, it's kind of that kind of deep to, to this um, day. To, to this day, I, I think one of although there there is an there is an additional historiographical issue which I think is really interesting to me, which is that um, so many of the red fins left. They went to America. Um, they went to Canada, they went to Australia, uh, they went to the Soviet Union and, and started working in Soviet Karelia um, and, uh, uh, and ended up being killed by Stalin. Um, so as a result, there's a kind of red absence within modern Finland. The, the story of modern Finland is told by the whites and the descendants of the whites. Um, and I, I had no trouble selling a biography of, of Carl Gustav Mannerheim. Right. We, we went, and it's one of my publisher's bestsellers. I wanted to follow it up with a book about the John Grafton incident, which was this very famous um, uh, red fin uh, terrorist uh, plot in, in 1905, uh, where they tried to start a revolution in Finland in order to distract the Russians from the Russo-Japanese war. 
no one take no one's interested it's been 15 years no one is taking this this book because because finding an audience for a book about redfin is very difficult because so many of them are dead mm-hmm. um so uh that's very interesting as well and that still crops up as well there was a um, Tarja Halonen, the, the last president of Finland, there was a Memorial Day um, uh, uh, ceremony, and she didn't go to the big one at the National Cemetery. She went to one for the the the, the, the dead Reds, uh, and as a socialist, she was making the, the 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 comment that these people died for their country too, um, and, uh, and and you know there were you know there were many sides to the the, the birth of Finland. And, um, but the, the story that's told is, is, is the one of the victors, of course. Um, was the John Grafton incident, um, I remember there were two major assassinations around the time of the Russo-Japanese War. One was uh, Nicholas II's Bobrikov. uncle. Right. Uh, and then one, there was, I think, a governor of Finland, if I'm not mistaken. The governor of Finland, uh, Bob, yeah, that, that's right. I think Nicholas II's uncle, was it Michael? Or I can't remember uh, no, his no, name um, now. But... Sergei... Alexandrovich, okay. I, think, I think so. Okay, so so yeah, so there was the uncle, but the the, the one that yeah. really rankled was Bobrikov. Yeah, because Bobrikov was the um, was the governor of Finland who who implemented all of these policies mm-hmm. that the Finns um, uh, that the, the made the Finns realize they're going to be treated like the Poles, uh, right. because for for decades um, uh, uh, the Finns were allowed their own government, uh, their own currency, their own language. Um, and, and uh, relative autonomy uh, with, within Russia, because Finland wasn't part of Russia, it was a grand duchy, and the Tsar of Russia happened to be the Grand Duke of Finland as well. And to this day, there is a statue of Alexander II, the Russian Tsar, the good Tsar, in the middle of Helsinki. In fact, I believe it's the only freestanding Tsar, statue of a Tsar outside Russia. It's right. right in the middle of Helsinki, right in front of the, of the National Cathedral next to the old uh, Parliament building. Um, and, and people still leave wreaths there and flowers there even now. And, and, and the nastier the Russians get, the more flowers pile up on Alexander II's statue because it's the Finns being quite passive aggressive and saying, we remember when we liked you, you know. Um, and so, uh, so, the, so the Finns had this, this great autonomy and they had this reputation uh, right up to the 1890s of being the most loyal subjects of the Tsar. And there's a reason why Nicholas II and his family would always go on holiday in Finland, because there was less chance of them getting murdered there than if they went on holiday uh, in, in Russia. Um, and, so, and so Finland was, you know, had this great reputation. And then with, with, uh, after 1895, when the Russians start saying, no, you've got to use Russian in schools, you've got to use Russian currency, uh, we're, we're, taking, we're taking control of all these things. That's what really kicks off the national romantic movement and the Finns pushing for their own identity and, and, and pushing against the Russians. And the assassination of Bobrikov, which I think was 1905, I want to say, it might be 1904, um, by uh, Eugene Schaumann, uh, was, was, was fascinating because Schaumann, um, you know, <laughs> He's one of those figures, uh, the Koreans have them too, where you have these kind of important icons of state formation who are terrorists. <laughs> and, so, and so can you build a statue to this guy? And, and so Shaman was supposed to be buried in an unmarked grave. And of course, the moment no one was looking, suddenly this massive mausoleum turns up over his, over his, um, over his grave. Um, and uh, there, were, there was a flurry of films uh, in the late 30s um, chronicling the 10th anniversary of the... Of the um, of the war, uh, of the civil war, um, and uh, one of them, I think it was the activists, um, actually had a, a, a reenactment of the shooting of Bobrikov, and they shot it at the place where he was he was killed in the Senate building, mm-hmm. and they got 
um, Eugene Shalman's nephew, I think, to play Eugene Shalman. Um, So, you know, it's really quite bonkers. You you know, I don't imagine that we'll ever get that with 911. Um, so, um, so yes, the, the assassination of Bobrikov was a, was a big deal, and, and very famously, it's the front page news, I think, in the newspaper in Ulysses by James Joyce. So when, so in Ulysses, when someone opens a newspaper, it's that thing about that guy who's been killed in in, in Finland, and it's it's the assassination of Bobrikov because that's the, that was the day after it happened, I think. Um, so I can't remember how we got onto that now. No, the John Grafton, <laughs> none of those things. No, the John Grafton, which is not the subject of this podcast, but I wish it were. Um, was this crazy event in, in Finnish history where uh, the Japanese um, wanted to distract the Russians from the, 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 the Asian front. And so they gave, I think, a million yen, which was a lot of money in those days, to a man called uh, uh, Motojiro Akashi, who was their um, liaison, their, their naval attache. And they said to him, do anything you can to distract people. Um, and so he funded various revolutionary presses and, um, and, and propagandists, including, it's believed, a young Lenin. Um, and um, he got this guy called uh, Connie Ziliakis uh, um, to buy a huge number of guns and, uh, and explosives and to smuggle them in a ship called the John Grafton to the coast of Finland in, in the aim of, of starting a revolution. Um, and it, it didn't quite work. Um, they, they kind of sailed around in circles in the Baltic for a while. Um, and uh, eventually they crashed into the side of Finland. Uh, and, and the Russian Navy turned up to arrest them and they had to blow the ship up. Um, but the thing is, is that uh, because it was one ship and they didn't know how many ships there were, it really spooked people that you know maybe there's a Jim Grafton and a Dave Grafton and a, and a, you know all these other Graftons. We don't know how many ships there are, so it really worried people that the, the Finnish kind of fifth column was much bigger than it was. Um, and I think that's a really kind of fascinating story as well. Um, with you know the, the Japanese trying to start a revolution in in Europe is is kind of great fun, and, and there's some amazing characters in it. But but sadly, um, nothing came of that. Um, so um, there wow. you go. I, I'm sorry, I, I, I've I've dragged you way <laughs> off where you want no, to no, go. No, 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 take sorry. me, take me wherever. Um, no, no, that's uh, I, I would love to actually talk to you, um, uh, perhaps on another episode about that. That 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 mm-hmm. sounds fascinating. Um, uh, but uh, to kind of backstep a little bit, so um, y- y- by World War One, uh, Mannerheim was already serving under Brusilov. I believe uh, yes. one of arguably one of the best generals in World War One. Yes, on either side. And you- you yep. know a lot more about Brusilov than I do, I'm afraid, because um, his Polish uh, activity and his World War One military record is not something I've really investigated in any mm-hmm. great deal. Um, right. The I, I'm only really now starting to get interested in in that part of Europe and and, mm-hmm. and the involvement of um, uh, of Finns in Russian service in Bessarabia and Romania and, and and Poland and so on. But yeah, he certainly did work for Brusilov, and he fought he fought with great reluctance. Um, on the uh, uh, on that front in, in World War One, and and of course it's a story that's really undertold because Russian involvement in World War One is such a kind of dead end in history, because the Russians you know they have they have problems of their own by the end and they pull out and they're not and they're not involved and and so that that was kind of the, that was the pinnacle of Mannerheim's career. It was the last chance for him to really be involved. I mean, luckily for him, uh, it was still a, 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 a theatre of combat that involved horses, so he was still able to use this kind of 19th century ability that he that was kind of ossified and outdated by that point in, in many other parts uh, of, of the military world and uh, but he was 
by this point, he was he was heading up for 50. He'd been badly injured um, by a horse. He'd been kicked by a horse. He was assessing uh, and, and he'd been told he'd never ride again. And he, he, he kind of managed to sort of, as it were, get back on that horse. But um, nevertheless, uh, the physicality of being a cavalry officer is something that was just about to uh, to ruin his career for him. Um, and uh, he asked to be to be um, removed um, and they put him in charge. Uh, he ended up in Odessa. He was in what is now the Ukraine. Uh, well, for a while, uh, for for what uh, in, in Odessa, and that's when the news arrives of the the revolution in Finland. And um, and there's uh, there's one Finnish author whose name escapes me, Jörn Donner, Jörn Donner, and he said that is the that is the hinge in history. That's the crucial moment in history, because Mannerheim could have just stayed in Odessa, he could have stayed in Russian service, but he didn't for some absolutely bizarre reason. He got on a train and he went home. He went back to Finland, which was tearing itself apart. You know, the number of times he came within a hair's breadth of being executed um, by, by the Reds, certainly. Um, there's one fascinating uh, uh, incident in his life, which I took great pleasure in recounting, and which also turns up in the opera based on his life, where he is hiding out in someone's house in a pink bathrobe because uh, his clothes are being washed and a bunch of Bolsheviks burst in looking for white officers and they see this guy there uh, you know in, in, in wearing a nighty basically right. and, and they go are you are you uh, are you a Russian officer he goes no no I'm, I'm Finnish actually so uh, yeah not me not me I'm a, I'm a Finn just be here being Finnish and he's wearing cavalry officers boots <laughs> and they go so why are you wearing cavalry officers boots and there's this kind of really awful pause and then he says, well, you know, these days you have to take what shoes you can. And they go, oh, OK, fine. And they kind of charge out again, you know, to have a revolution somewhere else. And, and you, you just think that that's such a ten that's real yeah. inglorious bastards tension there. Um, and he had a number of lucky escapes like that uh, before he made he made it to Vasa to join the, the, yeah. the, the white rump government and, and, and lead the uh, and lead the, the white uh, um, counter assault. Yeah, it's almost like destiny was protecting him at that point. Like there was, you know, no, they accepted his uh, excuse. I guess you know. Him yeah, yeah, I, it, it's 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 very tempting in history, as as you may know, to have a mode of implotment to kind of to push a certain agenda on someone's life. And with Mannerheim, the agenda that's always pushed is destiny being on his side. Is every single one of these moments in his life leads to him winning the well, as far as the Finns are concerned, winning the Winter War. If you ask the Americans, they say the Russians won the Winter War. If you ask the Russians, they say what war? Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's, that too is a very complicated issue. Um, um, so, uh, so, so, yes, uh, it, it, I, I was actually very, my interest in Mannheim's life was always his Asian contacts, his Asian connections, and the, and the fact that he spent so much of his life preparing for a war that never happened with, with Japan. Uh, which was, right. you know, uh, wrong-footed by events of the 20th century. The Russians and the Japanese would have definitely gone at each other like hammer and tongs um, by the 1930s if there hadn't been other other issues getting in the way. Um, but uh, but but yes. So I can't, once again, I can't remember what the question was. But um, yes. So so you, you were asking about uh, World War One and and, and Brusilov, and the answer is I don't know. Um. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, 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 it's absolutely fine. Um, no, I was going to say um, or ask, uh, did uh, that that second encounter in World War One with, uh, with Nicholas mm. II in your book, um, if I'm not mistaken, he said that he was surprised that Nicholas wasn't talking about what was going on, like military wise. He was just talking about like, you know, like his family, like kind of the mm. latest news, not World War One. And mm. he was dismayed by that and worried. Yeah. Uh, did he yeah. ever like try to kind of speak to Nicholas at that point? Because Nicholas made that faithful decision of you know uh, becoming I, head of I, the army. <laughs> I, I I don't think so because I don't think their relationship was such that he would be able to speak truth to power like that. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was a loyal subject of the Tsar, but he wasn't an advisor. He wasn't a counselor. Those hours that he spent talking about his mission was kind of a one-off thing, really. And those days that he spent standing guard by Nicholas II were him standing guard you know he he, he was the bodyguard he wasn't the the the, the counselor uh, in that way um but i i think we've heard other people talking about nicholas ii's attitude uh during his life the idea that he's blinkered that he's cosseted that he doesn't really understand what's going on outside the palace um uh i, I mean he, the, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all um, that he would have been so, uh, what's the word, uh, stupid. <laughs> you know, uh, this, this is someone who's, you know, he, he, his real experience of the world was going to Japan and getting stabbed by a would-be assassin right. uh, in 1891, the, the Otsu incident, uh, at which point he proclaimed, and I quote, the Japanese are a bunch of monkeys, <laughs> and, and spent the rest of his life you know, saying you know, at some point we're going to get them back. We're going to get them back for this. And then you know, at his coronation, there is Kodinka Field. There is this awful tragedy where the people get crushed in the in the um, at the celebrations, which you know throws this horrible pall over the whole thing. He goes overconfidently into the Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese famously defeat the Russians, uh, which is very shocking on a number of uh, fronts because it shows just how quickly the Japanese are, 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 are rising up uh, as a military power but also from a racial point of view this is an Asian power defeating a white power and this is you know this ter- ter- terrible shock to, to, to many uh, European strategists um, and of course as a result of the Russo-Japanese defeat I think it's fair for me to say this we get the, the 1905 revolution uh, and so he's making concessions and he's, 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 he's walking things back all the time um, and I think we see something very similar in China with with the Qing emperors as well. You know, it's by by the the the, the nineteen teens, the emperor is only in his little palace, and he doesn't really have an authority outside of it. Um, and and so I, I I think that it doesn't surprise me in the least that Nicholas II would have uh, uh, would have had such bad counsel on that, or not listened to the counsel that he did have, which was also uh, possibly an issue uh, with him. Right. It's interesting, though, like he's isolated to the palace, yet technically he has absolute authority. Right? Yes, but isn't that the way with all aristocrats, though? Um, oh, <laughs> um, um, I mean, uh, I, I, I presume, have, have you been to St. Petersburg? I, I presume you yes. have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, it, it's an amazing city to this day because the 20th century seems to have been evaporated before your very eyes. It's just not there yeah. anymore. It's kind of all Tsarist or all, yeah. all 21st century, and there's no 20th in the middle. And when you see the opulence and the lifestyle that the Russian royal family, the imperial family had, and when you you realize just, I mean, there's little tiny facts also come in, in. One of the things that made Mannerheim's life difficult was he was never very good at Russian. 
he, he never really learned it really well. Right. Uh, the language that he used to talk to everyone in his social circle in St. Petersburg was French, uh, as it was for the Russian imperial family. Um, and so, you know, um, so, so late in life, uh, or, or, you know, in, in his 40s, when he's on his spying mission in China, he's claiming, uh, P P uh, Paul Pellio is, is ridiculing him, saying, your Russian's terrible. I thought you were supposed to be one of them. And he's like, well, we, we speak French at the palace. You know, we, um, so um, that's the other thing as well, is, you know, you're, you're dealing with an aristocracy who are so removed from the people that they rule that they are literally right. speaking a different language, which is also not unusual uh, with many aristocracies. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that's that's a big issue as well. Uh, but, you know, that that is a, a I don't want to make broad generalizations about Russian history, but, you know, you are dealing with an elite that is so different from the people they rule over and, and you're dealing with a, a, a frontier mentality which is so different from the people uh, back in the, in the in the west of the country you know the, the difference between you know a cossack in Irkutsk and uh, you know uh, a chevalier guard in in uh, st petersburg is, is just an entire world away and that's one of the amazing things about russian history is just you know it, it does stretch all the way from the edge of korea to the edge of finland mm -hmm. so then um I guess let, let me point the question to this. So you mentioned the uh, kind of to backstep. So he yeah. was somewhat of a rebellious, you know, youth, you know, mm -hmm. back in the day. Um, then he eventually made somehow made it to the chivalry guard. I probably butchered the pronunciation. Mm -hmm. um, what was that changing factor in between? Because like in your book, like all of a sudden, I think when he, maybe at Nikolovskoy or certain, uh, shortly after, he all of a sudden becomes incredibly motivated. Mm. to kind of achieve and you know to kind of to please uh, you know the powers that be very difficult for me to say at, at, at a century's remove i'll try though um mm. i think the answer we're looking for is possibly very very simple that he just grew up that it's it's very possible for someone to be an awful child and to grow <laughs> up into into quite a nice you know adult i'm not thinking of anyone in particular but i've got relatives um and and so um so so, so that's a possibility. It, um, also, his uncle Albert, Al Albert von Eulin, who was one of the many family members who um, uh, were worked as his guardian angels. I mean, Albert and also his, his godmother, Alfield, um, were, were very powerful influences on him. And uh, by that point, by the time he was in St. Petersburg, they did sit him down and say, this is really your last chance. There is no money on the table. We don't have anywhere else to send you. This is it. This is all you've got. Um, and, and I so I, I think that he does knuckle down. He, he does grow up an incredible amount uh, in St. Petersburg. Uh, you know, he marries Anastasia, um, which when you look at his, he, he didn't write his own memoirs. They were ghostwritten. But the fact that it's only one sentence in the entire memoir <laughs> yes. tells you an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and his relationship with Anastasia was very problematic. And in fact, there's an entire book. Um, called uh, Manorheim in Eleman Nyset, the women in Manorheim's life, which talk about all the other women in his life because he was cheating on his wife very early on um, yeah. with a whole slew of, of, of Russian and Polish aristocrats and ballet dancers mainly. He had a, he had a type. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he had this um, yeah. you know, very problematic relationship with Anastasia. But when you look at his life between about 1890, I think he got married around then, and 1905, you know, the, uh, when he begins uh, planning for his, um, his, his spying mission in, in Asia, mm -hmm. you've got a man who is just trying to monetize 
just trying to to put the money on the table to keep things going to maintain himself in this St. Petersburg lifestyle that he likes uh you know he relies on Anastasia for the 1890s but she's gone she's she's in Paris very quickly uh having you know given up all hope of, of getting anywhere with him so then he's leaning on the on military careerism on being the best horseman to win those awards on being the best soldier to get those medals um, on volunteering for the most weird missions to get that peacetime promotion that wouldn't otherwise be available. And so I think really the simplest answer is growing up, but the uh, uh, possibly a more nuanced answer is desperation that he's yeah. got, he's got nowhere left to go at this point. You know, he's back, he's literally back the wrong horse by specializing in cavalry. And that's going to be the internal combustion engine is going to finish that off. And so he has this, he's probably got a 20 year window in his career when he has to kind of do something um, and he does everything he can to do that. And, and just when it all falls apart, the civil war breaks out and he goes home to Finland. Um, I think it's very easy to imagine him if dates had been ever so slightly different as missing that last bus, as becoming this kind of failed military officer, you know, somewhere in retirement in some obscure part of the Tsar's empire and never actually getting anywhere. Uh, I, I think it was it was very very close, and so and so you, you mentioned before that the role that blind luck seems to play in his life, this kind of sense of destiny, and, and I, I think um, I think there there is an incredible amount of luck there, um, and it, it often makes me think about the many many other chevalier guards and Finns in in Russian service and and, and people in the Tsar's army who who didn't have that kind of luck, who were kind of ground up, you know, between the nineteen teens and the nineteen forties. You know, yeah. whose, whose lives were, were, were ruined by not having that kind of luck. So his strategy was almost uh, essentially what you said, like desperation, Des desperation to kind of yes, keep I, swimming. I, I, I think yeah. he was a real careerist yeah. by this point, you know, and he, he'd, you know, he, he tried to specialize in horses. He tried to specialize in a, a war in the Far East that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, he's... Uh, I do see a certain suicidal tendency, a certain foolhardiness in his bravery. Um, and this, this, you know, it's a very difficult subject to discuss in Finland because the Finns want to hear that he was the greatest soldier that ever lived and he was a fantastic general. And he, yeah, he was, you know, a really great general and he was a fantastic soldier. But, but, I, but, I, but I think, you know, the, the, if you want to get psychological, you know, deep down, um, repeatedly in the Russo-Japanese War, people are sending reports back home saying, I don't know what Mannerheim is on. He is volunteering for these weird missions and, and he's, you know, he's, he's always at the front. He's always, you know, the most valorous person there. It's like he's trying to prove something. Um, and what he's trying to prove is that he needs that medal to pay those bills. I'm, I'm curious a little bit. So he's sort of hustling... And I guess yeah. the modern word would be hustling to, you know, get uh, this financial security to stay in the mm. game, to stay in the mm. society that he thinks is, you know, eternal, I guess, like, you know, St. Yeah. Petersburg High Society. Yeah. So um, that, uh, I guess he does achieve, you know, to become like, you know, the highest military ranking officer at the start of, uh, I guess, the Russian Civil War and so forth. Um, he, the situation obviously changes, you know, obviously with the war, but uh, with the Civil War. Um and he, I think, almost reluctantly uh, becomes military leader. Uh, yeah. So where I'm conflicted is that, like, like he's technically going for security, going for a certain level of power, 
but he's he doesn't care about like you know the absolute power like if you take like you know let's say vladimir putin, putin like right. completely different character obviously yeah but it seems like he uh for putin's side like he kind of went from the bottom and has been mm -hmm. kind of clawing his way to the top and desperately retaining you know that yes. uh, the hill at uh, the top of the yeah. hill um whereas mannerheim yeah isn't exactly that but uh, this is why he's a hero yeah. This, I, I, I mean, you know, speaking, I, I'm a newly minted Finn. I, I've, I've been a Finn for a few months now. I haven't passed my, <laughs> my citizenship exam. And it's very rare in history that you find someone who has power and doesn't want it. Uh, you know, I can think of examples. There's, you know, Sulla, the dictator of the Roman Republic, who, who you know, he was dictator when he was appointed and then he retired and went and lived on a farm. Uh, and, you know, so every now and then you'll, you'll, you'll see a figure in history who, who genuinely means it. He goes, yeah, I'll, I'll do my duty. I'll do that thing. And then when it's done, I will leave. Um, there are detractors of Mannerheim who say, no, 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 you're, you're, you're not seeing through the, the, the smokescreen that there were moments in his life when he was very power hungry. Um, there was a moment um, during World War II when he issued a, a directive to the Finns it was very, that remains very controversial, um, calling for um, uh, a greater Finland, suggesting they take the war not only to the border of Finland, but into Karelia, into the Kola Peninsula and into, into Petrograd, mm -hmm. Leningrad. Um, um, and and there, were, I mean, there were Finns who said, we, we didn't sign up for this. We signed up to defend our country, not to attack somebody else. Right, yeah. um, and, and so, so there, are, there are stories of him kind of, you know, being tempted by Sauron's ring, almost. You know, <laughs> see, seeing this, right. this opportunity to, to do something. Um, yeah. I personally see that as a manifestation of his love of white Russia, of his desire right. to... To, to, you know, his hatred of Soviets and his love of, of, of Russia are, are, are two very similar concepts in his mind. And, and, and I think that was a moment when it got to him, when it overpowered him, and he, he, he was, you know, very keen to do so. Also, it may have been echoing a certain German idea of Finland's Lebensraum, this idea that, you know, there, there's a greater Germany, there's a greater Finland. Uh, Mannerheim had very problematic relations with the Germans. Uh, one of the reasons that he left office after the civil war was that he really disagreed with the way the Germans were, were pushing themselves onto the Finnish uh, Republic. Um, he didn't like the idea of a German prince being elected King of Finland. And in fact, when, oh, I, I don't know if you're aware of that story, but uh, it's, a whole, it's a whole other thing. I, I think uh, I heard it, but uh, please say it like. <laughs> oh, well, if, if you want to know. So, so uh, as, as the, the, as Finland, you know, as the whites win in Finland during the civil war, I apologize to listeners for bouncing all over the 20th century, but um, as the whites win in the civil war, there's this question of, of state formation, which is my favorite subject. What do the Finns do now? Do they join Sweden again? what the British suggested, nobody liked that idea. Um, do they form a, an, an independent republic? Do they try and join Russia? I mean, obviously, the, the, the Finnish Soviet Socialist Republic in Terioki wanted to rejoin Russia as a, as a Soviet Socialist Republic. Um, do they join a greater Germany? Uh, someone said, why don't we have a king? We'll just get a king, and then we'll be a monarchy, and, and that'll sort it all out. And, we'll, and who do we get to be king? Um, we'll invite some German guy. And so there was a, a relative of the Kaiser was invited, uh, uh, Frederick Karl of Hesse was invited to be, uh, Friedrich Karl of Hesse was invited to be the King of Finland. He accepted, and for 60 days, he was the putative King of Finland. Um, and, and, and World uh, War I was still going on. World right? War I was, was about 
four weeks away four from weeks. finishing <laughs> at this point. And so there's this really embarrassing moment when the Germans lose. And one of the conditions of Finland receiving aid and Finland receiving recognition is no Germans are involved. And so Friedrich Karl, you know, gently bows out and says, you know what, I'm not going to show up, maybe forget it. And he kind of backs away. Um, and his son, who who the, the women of Finland were very excited about, this is kind of German crown prince. He's going to be he's going to be the second king of Finland, and you know someone's going to marry him. He might as well be a Finnish woman. And, and you know, and, and so he never you know showed up in Finland at all, and they they gave up having Finnish lessons and so on. Um, and there was a wonderful exhibition very recently in in Tampere in Finland of all of the material items that were part of this project that was then cancelled, because at the time that Friedrich Karl. Um, relinquished the putative throne of Finland, um, people were already delivering his furniture to the palace. They designed, you know, the throne and they designed the crown and all this sort of stuff. Um, so, so, so no, nothing came of that. Although there is a coda that that in World War II, one of the S, one of the German officers uh, in Finland fighting in the Lapland War was Friedrich Karl's son. Uh, who actually wrote a book about kind of going back to the country that was almost his uh, and, and, and just working as, you know, some colonel in, in, in the right. army on, on the Arctic road. Um, so anyway, wow. um, yes. <laughs> so, so, so they, uh, Mannerheim was made regent during this point because he'd been anti-German from the very beginning. He had a real problem with them. Um, um, and and his, his problem was, was also strategic. He said, we have to be seen to form our own country. We can't rely on Swedes or English people or Germans coming in and fighting our wars for us. We have to prove as Finns that we can, we can fight um, and, and establish our own country. Because he'd been so anti-German in September uh, 1918, uh, by November 1918, everyone's like, you know who we need? We need Mannerheim. He's cool. Uh, he's not been tarred by this German brush. Um, and, and so they made him regent, and he he actually represented Finland um, at at the Paris Peace Conference. You know, he he uh, one of his least known victories uh, was a meeting he had with Churchill, I think, or maybe Clemenceau, or maybe Churchill and Clemenceau. Mm -hmm. um, uh, was Churchill even at the Paris Peace Conference? Anyway, he he went to the Paris <laughs> Peace Conference, and right. he he argued uh, very strongly that uh, the Öland Islands in between Sweden and um, Finland ought to be kept as part of Finland rather than given to Sweden. And so um, that was a huge victory because the Swedes were very keen on it. And the people who live on the Öland Islands are all Swedish speaking and they would have very happily been part of Sweden as well. Mm -hmm. But those islands remained um, part of Finland. And that was, you know, Mannerheim's role as regent. That's one of the right. kind of victories that he scored by, you know, drinking cognac and smoking cigars with the right people uh, in, in Paris. <laughs> um, and, and so as a result, there's, right. there's a, I can't remember if it's eight or nine stars now on the, um, on the White Rose of Finland medal. But mm -hmm. the reason that the, each stars, each one of those stars is for a part of Finland. And one of them is the Öland Islands, which, right. which might not have been part of Finland if Mannerheim hadn't have, you know, greased the right palms. Oh, was that for like strategic reasons? Um, I think, well, no, no one wants to give any land up. Um, mm. um, but yes, I, I mean, the thing about the Öland Islands is that as, as the, the eastern, the, the westernmost part of Finland, they were also the westernmost part of the Tsar's empire. Mm -hmm. And the Tsar were, and, and so the post office and the fortresses on Öland are ridiculously opulent because they were the, they were the edge of the Tsar's empire. Right. And so they're, they're quite amazing to see even now. Um, and in, in terms of, you know, mastery of the Baltic, it's a fantastic harbor. Uh, you know, you, you might as well have that one. 
Um, oh, yeah. So yeah, I'm sure there was a strategic element as well. But also, I think you know, I think the Finns have given up enough of their land uh, in the 20th century. They didn't want to give up any more. Right. Um, as as you probably know, you know, 10% of modern Finland is missing. That's uh, right. Yeah. After after the concessions made to Russia, um, and that remains, um, you know, a, a, a very um, a very interesting issue in Finnish history because um, Karelia, for example, was conceded to the Russian. Viipuri, the second city of Finland, mm-hmm. uh, was conceded um, to Russia. And so thousands of refugees just poured into Finland and were resettled with very little fuss. And it's a subject that I'm absolutely fascinated with as a historian because so little is talked about. about What do you do with like 150,000, you know, refugees suddenly showing up in your country um and you know the housing design in finland you know has there's a there's a certain kind of house which is a kind of prefabricated house which you can tell was, was part of the resettlement um there's the issue of the orthodox church of finland lost 90 percent of its members when when karelia was um was ceded and so suddenly they they had this reconstruction law to build orthodox churches all over the country to kind of find a, a, a place of worship for these people and in by a rule of thumb by an ad hoc investigation of my own one in four Finns has some kind of connection to Karelia to these lost lands right. um uh and Soviet Karelia was Finnish speaking I think up until the 1980s I think Finland was one of the official Finnish was one of the official languages in, in, oh, wow. in Karelia um and you, you can well up until Covid you could still go on a bus tour uh, to um uh Petrozavodsk or or um or Petroskoy and and mm-hmm. yeah you know, and there's a Finnish theater there and they put on shows in Finnish right. it was this kind of big you know thing for the Finns um so once again I forgot what the question was <laughs> I, I think I forgot I forgot yeah. as well um yes. uh so his final I guess sort of chapter in his life is he goes to Switzerland was that yes. to try to was that essentially a message to Finland saying, okay, I've done my duty three times over, you know, one is the civil war, world war two, and then, you know, a brief stint as president, uh, please leave me in peace. Uh, there's a, there's a bit of that. I mean, I think his, his actual words were Switzerland is a country devoted to forgetting a land devoted to forgetting. There's a very kind of, um, Oh, what's that film with Rafe finds in it? Oh, the Budapest Grand Hotel. There's 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 a very Budapest Grand Hotel feel, a very kind of Stefan Zweig feel to Mannerheim's later years, which is that everything that he was and everything that he fought for and everything that he believed in as a kind of late 19th century European was destroyed by 1940. And so in his old age, he went to this place with mountains and little clocks and you know, quiet life um, away from uh, what everything else was. I mean, you know, he, he, he was a, a Tsarist officer in the Grand Duchy of Finland and suddenly it's a republic, um, you know, and, and suddenly it's, you know, in this incredible brinkmanship relationship with Russia. I mean, by the, for, for decades, you have what the Finns call the Republic of Czechoslovakia, which is, you know, Kekonen is the president of Finland, and he's he's very, very carefully doing nothing to antagonize the Russians whatsoever. And so Finland is in this limbo, you know, right up until the 1980s, it's, it's in this really tense limbo. 
And so, so Mannerheim rejects all of that. He just goes away and just wants to be on his own. I think also as well, there is uh, an, an undercurrent of, um, uh, he was the only member of the establishment during the Lapland War who wasn't accused of being a war criminal. Right, yeah. Because, you know, uh, very controversially, um, the Russians attack Finland, no one comes to their aid, the Winter War ends, and then suddenly you have the Continuation War, uh, where, uh, also known as Operation Barbarossa, where, where the Nazis yeah. show up and the Finns and the Nazis fight together to attack Russia. And the Finns are very careful to describe this as a, as a co-belligerency pact Mannerheim himself, he said, we are not allies. We happen to be fighting the same enemy, but we are not allies. And, and we have letters from Winston Churchill to him saying, do you really think anyone's going to believe that? We're going to have to declare war on you now, and we'll do what we can to drop the bombs in the sea and everything, but this is really not on. This is not cricket. Um, so uh, you have this very controversial alliance uh, with the Nazis. And, and I will say as well that throughout Finnish history uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, the only country they could ever rely on was Germany. Uh, to come right. to their aid in, in times of trouble. And, and so the fact that the Germany that came to their aid was also Nazi Germany was something that passed a lot of Finns by. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the involvement of the Germans in Lapland uh, was, was, is, is a very interesting historical subject in and of itself. And there are all kinds of vestiges of it left uh, in the north of Finland, including in Rovaniemi, where if you're a German tourist, the locals will shake a matchbox at you uh, because the Germans burned Rovaniemi on their way out of it. Um, um, and uh, so because of this uh, Waffenbruderschaft, this, this co-belligerency pact between the Germans and the Finns, uh, most of the people involved in the, in the wartime establishment uh, were accused of being war criminals or stood trial as war criminals, whatever. Um, now, Mannerheim was appointed president at the very tail end of it all as a figure who uh, they, you know, people believed could, could kind of steer Finland, you know, through this, this very difficult um, logistical impasse of everyone who's in the establishment was working with the Nazis last week and, and now they've lost. But, and, and the Finns did turn upon the Nazis in the Lapland War in the, in the last year of the war. And this was supposed to put them on the right side of history um, by the end of it all. But it's a very delicate situation. And, and one suspects that if you felt that you might be uh, the next to get a knock on the door from the police at night, maybe Switzerland would be a good place to to, to spend your your twilight years. Um, so 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 there's there's that possibility as well, um, and, and also as well, Mannerheim was deeply uneasy about the uh, support for him among the military. Um, in the uh, in the aftermath of the war. There were a number of controversies around Stella Polaris, uh, the um, uh, what's the word for it? The recidivist movement, the the, the the deep state, the idea that there would be a, a a deep underground resistance to a potentially Sovietized Finland, and that the various army people were uh, were preparing, you know, bunkers and 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 um, uh, weapons caches and so on, ready to fight for Finnish resistance. And there was always uh, this sense with Mannerheim that even if the people didn't vote for him, the army would. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I, I certainly got a sense from from letters that he wrote late in his life and from from his memoirs that he wanted to remove that temptation from Finland himself. 
that he didn't want there to be some kind of sixth of January uprising with him as the with him as the um, as the figurehead. Mm. That you know he he he'd helped establish this republic. He'd helped navigate it to this landing in in a relatively safe way. But it was in everyone's best interest if he then you know carefully and discreetly removed himself. Right. So he was a man that uh, knew when to leave the party. Yeah. Oh was, God. Yeah. 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 yeah he, he knew when to leave the party. Yeah, he was. Um, he seems very um, self-aware, not of just himself, but also like his surroundings. Even if I guess luck was uh, helping him out as well. Um, yes, yeah. certainly, I, I, and and you, you get a sense with with a you know because World War Two, for, for for people who live in countries that are on the Allied side, it's very simple. It's good versus evil, and we're the good guys, and we won. Yeah. And and that's not true all over the world. Um, and in Finland, it's it's so much more complicated than that because um, I, I was at a conference once and someone was talking about how I you know every, everybody knows the Germans, the Nazis were just evil. And he was talking to an audience of people whose grandparents were in the SS. Um, uh, and and as, as, as Finns, they, yeah. they had joined the SS to, to fight for Finland because no one else was coming to help. Yeah. And, and that is a. Uh, and, and that kind of that kind of nuance is something that, that's yeah. often lost uh, with, with the simplifications of, of Hollywood um, in particular. Um, and and, uh, and this is amplified even more when it comes to Russia, because you know, mm. I, I, I've said repeatedly, we've got a man who, who loves Russians and hates Soviets. And, yeah. and, and, and that's certainly something that's, that's, that's very different to very difficult to reconcile for Finns themselves from being a country that was absolutely beloved of Russia, that the Russians just loved yeah. and who loved the Russians back as well to being a country of people who are surprised when I tell them that Mannerheim was in Russian service for 30 years. They genuinely don't know. You know, so many people just don't yeah. know. And you think, how does that happen? Because, you know, uh, so, so much of the, the, the general kind of um, serial packet version of history begins with the revolution in 1917. Ta-da, the Russians are gone. And now, the, now Mannerheim's in charge and hooray. And, mm. uh, and the idea that there's this kind of long roll up to it and that people have entire lives that lead up to it and entire directions not taken and roads not traveled um is often something that's lost in in the simplifications of history uh yeah and um the, the thing that got me on this um i guess a road to find out about uh you know Mannerheim was that like i asked like um at the time my 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 grandfather who's you know well versed in history suffered at the blockade of uh, leningrad he lived there mm -hmm. at the time along you know my grandmother as well and i, I think i was casually asking about uh, asking him about like various like uh, his opinion of various leaders of world war ii um mostly like you know allied leaders but the mm -hmm. gray zone was finland because of the, mm -hmm. i think at the time i learned that like finland was technically first on the side of uh, germany then they switched which was very interesting in mm -hmm. uh, 1944 mm -hmm. and then Asked, well, like, what are your thoughts on Mannerheim? And like, mm -hmm. I, I pronounce it in the English way, Mannerheim in Russian. It's yeah. not a game, and it took yes. him like a second to realize it. So I was like, really, you didn't couldn't tell. But um, uh, he said that uh, essentially he was a very um, respectable, honorable uh, man. Mm. And I was like, okay, for him to say that because my grandfather mm. rarely gives out compliments. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there's something to this man, and. Uh, yeah. Shortly after I found your book, <laughs> and eventually I found you. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting that a Russian would say that. I'm, I'm yeah. glad there. I mean, there are still. Uh, there was a little kind of memorial plaque to Mannerheim on a on a. I, I call him Mannerheim because that's how it sounds. 
in English, yeah. but in, in Finnish, it's in fact Mannerheim, Mannerheim. Uh, as you'll sometimes hear me drift into, and indeed Mannerheim in, in uh, um, and uh, and in Chinese Ma Dahan, if you ever need oh. to uh, uh, to say that. Um, um, there was a commemorative plaque to him in St. Petersburg, which was defaced a couple of years ago, um, because you know there, there, there's always uh, uh, the, 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 the the red white conflict is still you know very much ongoing <laughs> yeah. uh, even now. It's, it's interesting to hear to hear a, a Russian say that though, um, yeah. um, and there has been a, a substantial body of literature about uh, Mannerheim um, in Russian. There's a guy called Leonid Vlasov. Who's written several books about Mannerheim, including Mannerheim in Elaman Nice, The Women in Mannerheim's Life, uh, was originally written in Russian, mm-hmm. um, uh, because you know his his Russian years are largely ignored by the Finns. It's not something yeah. that the Finns are particularly interested in, but, uh, um, but they're so formative for him in, in yeah. establishing, you know, he, you know his life and his personality that i think they're they're very worth you know discussing yeah absolutely uh i have uh two questions of the time i guess we have left and we're a little over and i appreciate you uh, staying on um so one question which i loved so when he uh when Mannerheim first um i'll, I'll do the silly question first and the mm-hmm. more serious question after um when Mannerheim decided to join the chivalry guards he asked his uncle i think uh for some money to apply because you need to finance a certain portion like including like uniform and he's and his uh, uncle kind of not to put a damper on his dreams or something but he said that like you have to be incredibly disciplined to uh you know make it there and the pants that you have to put on is like they're supposed to be like put on wet or something because yeah. they're that tight so can yes. you clarify <laughs> yes no no that, that, that's that's completely true yeah. the, the 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 chevalier guards um like many Russian units, had to supply their own um, equipment, and and so Mannerheim was well used to doing that. And he, he, you know, he bought his own horses. He bought his own, and they, they had this very heavy helmet with an eagle on the top, which they used to call the pigeon. And they used to, and the, the, these kind of cavalry boots, and they used to wear these incredibly tight. They, I mean, it's, calling them trousers would be uh, a disservice. They're more like tights or leggings or something, and they were made of chamois leather. And they were, uh, and basically you would, you would have to get them wet to put them on and stretch them and they would sort of dry onto you. Um, so yes, in, incredibly tight. How that helped in a military situation, yeah. I don't know. But the Chevalier Guards were not a military unit. They, they were never expected to kind of fight people. And, and, and that's what made him such a controversial figure was, was that in 1904, he actually sticks up his hand and goes, I want to go and fight on the front. And they go, you don't have to. You've paid all this money and you're wearing all these stupid clothes. And that means you don't have to go and fight. You just get to stand guard over the emperor and go to the good parties and meet all the cool Russian girls. And he's like, no, no, I, I really need to go and, and, and fight. And, and, and this, this was like a, this was a scandalous to many of his comrades in arms that, you know, the whole point of the Chevalier Guard is you just dress up in these weird costumes and hang around the palace. Um, they didn't even take their horses out of the manege during the winter. I mean, very famously, they just sat there and played cards all winter. They didn't train a whole lot. Um, and and so, uh, so yes, indeed, they're, they're, the tight leather trousers uh, were indeed a, a feature of the Chevalier Guard. Um, I've never tried them myself, so I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, what, yeah. what the point of them. Maybe there was a hidden benefit. Who knows? 
yeah when i read it i was like i was picturing i was like how how does that work <laughs> um okay and uh i guess a more serious question um so he comes i think from the generation or maybe the parent of the generation that i'm thinking of that didn't boast about their military service to gain political leadership like i know that like technically he'd be the child of this generation but like george bush senior technically i think was a world war ii hero had a distinguished career but he never really like screamed at the top of his lungs like i'm so great uh you know i served in the military and so forth there was like uh, how you said at the beginning of the interview he um Mannerheim had uh humility hmm. so what uh what do you think would be Mannerheim's advice to world leaders, and obviously this is a very broad question, given what's happening today, whether leaders of Russia, leaders of the oh. West, and so forth. Given what's happening today, yeah, yeah. Well, um, sadly, big question. <laughs> sadly, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it would be the Russians are definitely coming. Mm -hmm. um, the the uh, the uh, Ukraine is a textbook. Um, uh, Russian maneuver from the from the twentieth century, um, and uh, it it has many resonances with um, the uh, the attacks on Finland in the Winter War. Um, Mannerheim would be saying to the Finns right now, um, "Yeah, join NATO if you like," but they didn't come last time. You know, <laughs> I, mean, I realize NATO wasn't formed until nineteen eighty eight, but 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 you know, the the fact is, is it's been a, a subject of some bitterness among the yeah. Finns that that they fought the winter war alone um and uh yeah wouldn't it be great if there was some kind of international organization that would come and help but no you didn't did you um and so the finns uh very much are uh regard themselves as as preparing for you know some kind of you know misery um uh to, which would kick off with a false flag attack as it did in in 1939 um and uh, and that uh, and, and he doesn't need to come back from the grave to give the Finns that lesson. The Finns are, are, are very much part of it right now. There is a lot of posturing going on right now, uh, of course, and, and, and some of it is performative. Some of it is, uh, and, and for the last 50 years, it has been the Finns do everything they can to make it as clear to the Russians as they can that a, a Russian invasion of Finland would make Afghanistan look like a tea party. Mm -hmm. Um and uh, I never really took that seriously until Ukraine. And then I saw how the Ukrainians reacted. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would have believed Putin's advisors that it would all be over in a week. And I was never expecting to see that level of, of resistance. Um, and, and so in, in, in Finland as well, uh, we, because I am a Finn now, have, have all kinds of things in place um, to, to make life very, very difficult uh, for any uninvited Russian guests. Um, and uh, you would be surprised at, at some of the, the Thunderbirds level stuff that, that is, you know, ready to happen in Finland. Um, and, and so he would be, I think, saddened to see that nothing has changed, but also maybe a little bit smug that someone like him would still have a role to play. Thank you, uh, Dr. Clements. Uh, this has been a fascinating interview. Um, thank you for uh, staying longer than, uh, you know, that uh, than I asked you for, which is, uh, yeah, I'm very grateful. And our, uh, my listeners uh, are very grateful. Uh, I, I love talking about this. I'm just hoping it yeah. all makes sense. when. It, <laughs> when <it all> comes. <laughs> no, it will. I would love for you to come on again, because like, uh, there's so many more questions to ask.
Yeah, sure. uh, I, I know that you released a, a new book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the uh, Japanese Empire. Uh, if, uh, if you want to describe it a little bit for listeners. Okay, that was, that was uh, a, a book that no one was expecting, least of all me. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my publishers asked me to write a book about the rise and fall of Japanese militarism. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 1868 to 1945. So basically tell the story of the Imperial Japanese Army and the Imperial Japanese Navy, which were institutions created um, in the 19th century and, and, and dissolved, officially dissolved in 1945. Um, and that's a book that's been written many times by many people. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll give it a go. And as I began working on it, I realized the thing that really interested me was the propaganda songs, was that there was weaponized music uh, in use in Japan, you know, throughout this period, mm-hmm. um, and not, and particularly after 1927, when radio becomes a national phenomenon. That you know, um, I, I can tell you what happened in history, but what I can do that other people don't do is I can tell you how it sounded. I can tell you the songs that were being sung at school assemblies and and at military events, and and how the the language of those songs reinforced a whole bunch of suicidal and very dangerous ideas which would ultimately lead to kamikaze pilots and, and, and Hiroshima. Um, and uh, uh, so, so that's, the, that's the direction that I took. And I'm very happy to come back at some time and talk about that, if you like, um, because it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very weird concept. And, and as usual, I find myself telling a, a, an unpopular story, which is really how it felt to be Japanese during that period, because um, there are all kinds of things that... Uh, I mean, sometimes uh, in, in, in much the same way that Finland seems to begin with the civil war and suddenly the Russians invade, um, the, 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 the popular narrative, the cornflake packet narrative of, of World War II is Pearl Harbor and then stuff happens. And, and Pearl Harbor is not a vacuum. Pearl Harbor is something that everyone's been talking about on both sides strategically for 20 years. And uh, I mean, literally saying, you know, we should probably attack Pearl Harbor first. And, and, and that's not just the Japanese saying that, that's the Americans as well saying, well, they'll probably go for Pearl Harbor. <laughs> and, and, and so, right. you know, you, you have this, this, this huge kind of buildup and, and, and you have the Japanese showing up at, at, the, treaty, uh, the, at the Paris Peace Conference and saying, we're, we're here now, we, we fought with you in World War I and, and we, are, we are one of the, the powers that, that you know, achieve victory. So we're, we're hoping we can achieve all of these things, including a clause against racism and maybe we can have free trade and, and maybe you can stop you know, attacking us because we're Asian. And everyone just ignores them because they're Asian. And there's, there's this huge slap in the face, which some of the smarter Japanese were expecting. And, and, and then they kind of, they go home to Japan. They say that great game that we thought we were playing, that 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 venture that we embarked upon to become an imperialist power. It turns out we're not welcome. It turns out we're not part of the club, and we're never going to be part of the club. And that just sends Japan off in this very, you know, odd, fascistic direction. Um, and uh, of course, 1914, I think, is when the Panama Canal opens as well, which is this real game changer um, in in world history because suddenly for the Japanese, Brazil is nine days closer, but so is New York, and American ships can travel to the Pacific with, with greater ease. And, um, and during World War I, the Americans put a, uh, a freeze on, on um, shipping um, metal and certain materials to Japan. And the Japanese realized that at any point, if the Americans decide the Japanese are not with them, they can shut stuff down. 
and that that itself creates this world. You know, if the, if, if they're our friends now and they've done this to us, what would happen if they were our enemies? We should talk about that. Um, and and so I end up um, not not supporting the Japanese, not you know, not singing from the hymn sheet of Japanese fascism, right. but but pointing out how it would have looked on the other side of the Pacific, and and how that you know created a series of very tragic events that, that that led to Japan becoming this you know this awful um, state um, that eventually uh, you know invited its own destruction um, and, and so you know that that was a very tough book to write because it's it hasn't got a happy ending really it, it doesn't you know there's no good guys in the history of fascism um, so uh, that that was very difficult to write and, and it took a lot out of me and I'm still kind of recovering from it now you know Mannerheim's a happy story you know I, I finished that and i was ready to get on with other things um but the japanese the rise and fall of japanese militarism is it's, it's it's very draining to tell war stories um particularly if you know you're you're you're, you're treating them with uh, um th this is a tangent once again but um Mannerheim's military base in Nikoli uh was called the headquarters museum it was a museum for a long time and they've now turned it into a bigger museum called moisty the museum of memories and it's a music it's a war museum but it's designed to make you leave never wanting to go to a war museum again mm -hmm. it's very interesting the way that someone has clearly had a meeting about this in the last couple of years and said you know we want to completely de-glorify everything about war uh in a museum so that school parties turn up thinking it's going to be exciting and leave miserable and depressed. Uh, and that's a very odd way to plan a venue, but they've done it in this place. And so all of the, the personal accounts and the exhibits, they're not about soldiers. They're about women who've lost their children and children who are refugees and so on. And there's this kind of timeline that you walk along of, of military events. And it actually ends with the invasion of Ukraine as you walk out the door. Um, oh, and wow. It, it, yeah, and 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 it, it's 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 quite shocking. It's quite it's very provocative, um, and 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 that's what it feels like writing a book about you know Japanese militarism as well. It's that uh, you know you don't finish it going well. That was fun. I want to do another one of those. Uh, that that never happens. Right. Yeah. For for that subject matter, um, the material is heavy. Mm. Uh, to put it mildly, yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Um, well, uh, well, as the famous line goes, like war is hell. Right? And it's, uh, it's it's scary how, uh, to me, in my opinion, it seems we're almost tiptoeing, not quite sleepwalking, but tiptoeing back to war. Like, I used to think that there's like an ironclad separation that world, uh, something like World War II could never happen again, just ironclad. Yeah. But now it seems it's like, just uh, like JFK said, like uh, something along the lines of like, uh, it's held together by a string or something like that. Like, yeah, it's mad man. I mean, speaking as a historian, yeah. you, you, you see... Uh, people, uh, you see asides in, in historical accounts of people saying, well, we know there's going to be a war in a couple of years, so, you know, we're getting out of the way now. And I see people talking that way now. Uh, and, you know, and my areas of specialty being, you know, China and Japan and Finland, you know, I'm, there's pretty much nowhere for me to go in my daily life where, I mean, you've got the US Navy actually predicting the date that China is going to invade Taiwan. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's quite problematic for me um, mm -hmm. um so uh so so yes it, it it does feel that i i think sleepwalking is still a reasonable uh description because i certainly many things have taken me by surprise 
um, since 2016. I mean, Brexit for me was the thing that really yeah. tipped me over the edge into, oh, okay, so it, it turns out we're living in the mirror universe now and everything's <laughs> awful. Um, and I, I spent the last yes. um, six years, you know, trying to, you know, become a citizen of a something somewhere that isn't a failed state you know um and and so uh so yes it, it's, it's a depressing thing to see and you know I, I was just having lunch with my family today and, and they were telling me that everything i hate about england is also going wrong in france and also going wrong in germany and fuel prices are going to go up 65 percent and and speaking as a historian it's fuel prices that you're watching for everything else going wrong and i and i, I do feel I've, I've been writing a lot lately about ukrainian science fiction believe it or not because there are a number of ukrainian science fiction authors who essentially predicted uh the current war um in the last six or seven years uh, many of whom are now government officials in luhansk and donetsk um uh, and it's, it's almost like they were writing a playbook for it, you know yeah. um and I can't remember why I was telling you that now. But, um, <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, ne nevertheless, it, it, it does feel weird. I think part of it. I, I don't know how old you are. I, I'm 51, mm. and so I, I'm hitting that age where people tend to go mad, uh, and, and because they see the world around them yeah. collapsing, the world that they believed in falls apart, and that's a very common generational thing. Yeah. It's what midlife crises are. Um, um, but 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 also. Um, you know the uh i'm sure you're more familiar with me uh with 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 russian politics but um i for my sins i watch vladimir putin's new year's message mm -hmm. I always exciting ever stuff <laughs> have you ever watched that of course because it's fascinating <laughs> because he is so nice he is so kind and conciliatory and avuncular and you realize that this is the man that the Russian people are watching. He's not the man that, that's being presented to uh, um, the world in the Western media. And, and he's probably not the, the, the real person either. But the image that's being presented to the Russian people in the New Year's, in the New Year's message is this incredibly statesmanlike uh, politician. Um, and, uh, uh, and then you, look, you go back and you look at his New Year's message just after Boris Yeltsin resigned. Uh, and he's incredibly kind and conciliatory. Yeah. I'm sorry, but Boris Yeltsin won't be with us anymore. I'll look after things. <laughs> and you think, wow, this has been going on for 20 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's uh, sadly, we live in interesting times. And, and that's, uh, that's not something I ever wanted for myself. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope things kind of uh, take a pause for, you know, to kind of, like the volatility to drop because right now it seems it's like I, I can't say it's quite boiling but it's it's coming up there um but um i i, yes. I wasn't expecting ukraine to happen uh, but then again i Me wasn't <laughs> expecting i wasn't expecting crimea to happen and 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 then you know yeah. and everyone looked the other way um but i am I'm, I'm also aware that there are there are other issues at play in yeah. in crimea in in so-called novorossia um this you know the whole division of Ukraine between Russian speakers and, and, and Ukrainian speakers, uh, fortunately, it's not an issue that the Finns have. There are no Russian speakers in Finland. We don't, you know, they killed them all. So um, there, there, there is that, um, uh, I, I, I don't see uh, Putin coming to the aid of Russian speaking Finns anytime soon in the way that he might come to the right. aid, say, of Russian speaking Estonians, should there be some kind of manufactured crisis there. Um, 
Oh, like for uh, Cass's belly, like oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Russian well, I mean, well, that's what happened in Crimea. That's what happened yeah, in, yeah. in Crimea, uh, and and yeah. it's what happened in Donetsk and Luhansk and the whole whole Donbass region. Um, yeah. And uh, the, the 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 rhetoric, which is not really reported in the West, is is Novorossiya is not the same as Ukraine. That you know, Ukraine is divided between Galicians and you know the, the, these people from the old Poland Lithuania region who are in the West, and and, and Russians who are who are in the East. Yeah. Um, and that kind of division, that kind of almost, you know, Cold War Germany division of Ukraine is something that, that's being exploited right now. Uh, and that, that's not something that's really being discussed um, right. by the West uh, because it's it doesn't fit on the back of a cornflake packet, you know. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Dr. Clemens, uh, thank you again. Uh, you know, I could, I could honestly talk to you until tomorrow if, we, <laughs> if time allowed. Uh, um, it's, it's just you and me. All the other listeners have disappeared now. They've all gone. That's it. Everyone's... <laughs> um, but uh, where, could I, uh, where could our listeners find you? Um, Amazon.com is the place to look for me um, uh, because that's where you can buy all my books. Um, I do actually have a website at schoolgirlmilkycrisis.com. Um, nice and easy to remember. Yeah, uh, that's why I couldn't that, find you. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not it's not the first thing you'd think of yeah. uh, when when looking for the history of you know Finland. Um, but th but that is uh, that is actually for, for my sins. That is my website, and that's divided into yeah. Finland, Finland, China, and Japan, uh, depending on your interests. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to anyone watching or listening to this, um, there's another. Jonathan Clements, who's a finance expert uh, author, who hopefully one day will be on the podcast as well, and who I, graciously pointed me to you again. He's never going to talk to he you. Hates again. <laughs> he hates me. He hates me. No, no. But he no. graciously he uh, for I, I was very grateful that he uh, forwarded my email to you, and I was like, finally, I found you. Like uh, your your uh, website domain isn't exactly the first thing you think. <laughs> you should definitely get him on next month as well. And people, are, it's the same guy again, but it's yeah. not. Oh, that, that would be a fantastic intro. Um, no, he delayed me, I think, till 2023, which, okay, oh, respect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's, that's what you get for thinking yeah, yeah. about Japan. <laughs> well, um, uh, Dr. Clements, thank you so much. I hope to have you on again. Um, I wish you uh, massive, massive sales of all your books. Um, and hopefully this podcast will help. Uh, not that you need it. And congratulations on the recent uh, Finnish citizenship. And um, I hope... Uh, you know, I hope to meet you in person one day. I hope uh, Mannerheim could look on from above and, you know, be proud of the world that we have, you know, assuming that everything calms down. And, um, yeah. Um, yeah. Let, let, let's pray for things calming down. That sounds good. Yeah. I think let, let uh, cooler heads prevail. All right. So a little more cognac and more cigars, I think, will be yeah. better. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the Culture Cafe podcast. And I truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you learned something new from it, I would really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star rating and a sincere review so that more people can find it across the podcast platforms. To get in touch with me, please go on culturecafe.com, that's cafe with two Fs, or email me directly at nyculturecafe at gmail.com. Take good care, and I'll see you back here next week.